to the Dark Path Podcast. Today, I am very happy to be joined by Mark Hetch. Hecht. Sorry. I just got the pronunciation right just 10 seconds ago. So, But anyways, I'm very grateful that you're able to join me here. I'm not in my normal uh, location. I'm in a friend's place on Vancouver Island. We uh, jokingly like to call this place the Ascension Pad. Um, so uh, welcome, Mark, and uh, thank you for joining us. That's a pleasure, Luke. Yeah. Um, I would ask maybe if you wanted to just introduce yourself, a little bit about your background. I know that um, we met because you were running as the PPC, People's Party of Canada candidate for the Couch and Valley area. I was actually at your uh, uh, office grand opening. and uh, Yes, yes. Okay, now I, I recognize your face now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've been following the PPC and I'm very interested in all of that. And so, yeah, if you, if you wanted to share a bit about how you got involved with that maybe any other background information and, and, and go from there. Sure. Um, it's always difficult to figure out where to start that story, right? It's, I mean, we could go all the way back decades, and I think most of us have figured out that uh, the country we, we grew up with, for many of us, um, is not the country today that we enjoyed, say, 20 years ago. We've certainly seen slippage in um, sort of our freedom and general democracy. Uh, but where does my story start? I guess you could say I was um, I was teaching at Mount Royal University for about 11 years. I started in 2008 and um, I did my undergrad at UVic and I thought, you know what, I always I need to get back to the to the island. That's where I really enjoy living. Calgary's been Calgary was great, but I had made plans to come to the island and I was actually trying to line up work at UVic, and it was looking pretty good for a while. I, I knew some contacts there. And I made it very clear to my employer, Mount Royal University at the time, that I was going to be leaving at the end of 2019. And so, but I was also going to set up, and I was in the process of setting up uh, a field school to Europe. Hmm. So I would go back, the plan was I'd go back to Calgary every May and June and pick up the students and we'd go off to Europe for two months and do the field school but meanwhile my home base would be in Victoria mm. so this is a very long way of saying um, whether I was foolish or brave I don't know what it is but I wrote a I wrote an op-ed that was criticizing the dogma of diversity tolerance and inclusion oh. and I oh. submitted it to the Vancouver Sun oh. and they printed it hmm. it lasted all of I don't know, maybe 16 hours. <laughs> I think that was the maximum. <laughs> 16 hours. And before the Twitter mob exploded and I got uh, called all the usual, you know, xenophobic and white nationalist and blah, blah, blah. Racist, of course. Of course. Um, anyway, so I still moved to Victoria nonetheless. And Mount Royal University quietly uh, dissolved the field school idea. Um, even though they had paid for funding to actually send me off to Europe and get me, you know, researching the route and everything. So that was all lined up, but they quietly dissolved that and um, hmm. tried to make me uh, unassociated with Mount Royal University after that. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, I ended up here and I, I thought, well, I'll have to go some other route. Um, and politics seemed like, you know, the natural progression that... If I'm going to be one of the individuals within our society that's fighting back against cancel culture um, and fighting against the centralization of government and this kind of socialist, 
uh, I don't want to call it a takeover, but a socialist bent to where our society is going, mm. I needed to be involved. And probably the best route was politics. So I actually just sent out a note on Facebook to the People's Party of Canada saying, can I volunteer with you guys? Mm. And they sent a note back saying, do you want to be a candidate? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that's where it went. And I oh. became a candidate. Um, and through a little finagling with the other potential candidates on the south end of the island, hmm. I ended up in the Cowich Malahat Langford riding. Okay. Wow. Yeah. No, that, that's interesting because um, there's a core, the, 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 the coming together of the people that are saying, hey, you know, this cancel culture, woke culture, whatever that you want to call that, is definitely providing problems. And people sort of picking their heads up and saying, hey, this isn't, this isn't what we want to do with society. We don't want to start teaching kids to be racist against each other and all these terrible things. Yeah. And then the PPC just sort of pops up too. At the same time, we had this un, very unnecessary, ultimately, election. Um, and, and I think that that really drew in the basis of the people's, people in general's interest in the party, right? It's one of the few legitimately established, somewhat established um, political parties that's actually saying common sense things. And that's what drew me into the awareness of it because I was kind of aware of Bernier uh, from before. He had, you know, had a little bit of a voice and he was trying to be an alternative to the conservatives to a certain degree. But then, of course, in the last year and a half, everything just turned upside down in the world. And suddenly it was like reading their platform and I was like, holy crap, this is actually common sense shit. Like, it's not, mm -hmm. and it's not hyperbole. It doesn't seem like it's, 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 it seems authentic. It seems like it's actually honestly trying to aim at something that's more reasonable so i think what you said about the idea that we um there's a kitten chewing on lines here but we'll have to ignore that hopefully it won't get too bad um but what you said about how the candidate we grew up in is no longer where we're at and i grew up here in the calcian valley and it's a different world to where i was when i grew up mm -hmm. um so can you share maybe your thoughts on how how that process has sort of seeped itself into, like what's happened and, and, and where is this coming from and what are the roots of this ideology that's steering a lot of this? Um, yeah. You know, that's a bit of a tough one. I, I should probably clarify that um, I think you and I grew up in a Canada that for us was really beneficial. We had great childhoods, um, but certainly for myself over the course of my lifetime, Growing up in Kelowna, the Okanagan Valley, one, there is an incredible amount of growth, like yeah. there's population growth. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just to kind of clarify that, not everyone in our society would say that 20 years ago was a great time to be. Absolutely. Right. right. I mean, yeah. we have indigenous yeah. people that, that I know quite closely um, that would not say 20 years ago yeah. was a good time. I understand. Yeah. Uh, but for most Canadians, I would say, 20 years ago was better than it is today. And some people will say, well, that's just, you know, nostalgia. And it's, it's like, no, no, you can actually look at the statistics and you can see that our levels of trust in Canada have been slowly creeping down over time. Yeah. Um, so that's a pretty good indication that there's something fundamentally wrong with our society. Mm -hmm. So so then, yeah, the question is, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. um, and you, you could, I don't know, there's so many different angles you could take it from mm -hmm. uh, one you could say well our government has become more corrupt <laughs> and I think a lot of people would agree yeah our government's become more corrupt our media has become 
more centralized and corrupt as well. Uh And uh, if we go a little farther down that media road, uh, you know, we're we're at a time, I would say, that's like 150 years ago. We were going, 150 years ago, we were going through this period where you had the Industrial Revolution that was completely changing mm-hmm. society around the world. Mm-hmm. It was centralizing societies into these things that became nation states. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually wrote an article in the Canadian Journal about this one, mm. about how, um, as I say, if you go 150 years or 250 years ago, the people that we call Germans, for example, today, 200 years ago, they would have no idea what German was. Uh, right? You had to, but the technology changed in such a way that it forced this centralization and forced uh, the creation of a nation state. Uh, and then you had to create a, a narrative uh-huh. for that new nation state. And so for the Germans, what we call Germans today, they had to be told, okay, you're not German. Right? Uh-huh. So we've had that nation state narrative for 150 years. And in Canada, we've called ourselves Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're getting these changes in technology, particularly in communication technology, mm-hmm. where that national narrative, you know, everyone would sit down and watch CBC and across the entire country, everyone was watching CBC and you, you thought, okay, well, CBC is fairly, it's a little left leaning, but fine. Mm. But everyone sort of trusted CBC yeah. 20, 30 years ago yeah. because it was fairly well balanced. Yeah. But new communication technologies are forcing a polarization of the media itself yeah so they have to take up either an extreme left-wing view or they have to take up an extreme right-wing view and that's just to get subscribers and yeah. it's, a, it's a business model yeah uh, a lot of people say around 2015 2016 that's when the new york times went from a a news model mm. to an advocacy model yeah right which is you're trying to pump the emotion as much as you can yeah yeah. So those underlying technological changes, I think, have been slowly polarizing our society, which causes a breakdown in trust. Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with that? I don't know. Well, uh, that that is central, I think, is this combination of new um, communication technologies with a, a lack of trust on the official narratives that are being presented and then... I think that uh, I always hear this line from Terence McKenna in my head about when the dinosaurs fall, just try to get out of the way. Mm. And the dinosaurs of the the legacy media are falling. They they are dissipating to some degree. It's it you know CBC is being propped up by basically taxpayer money. But um, I think the key there though is like you said is like in order to get the the, the clicks in order to get the attention onto the media they have to go to one side or the other in an extreme way and in doing that they've lost the thread of the identity of the average Canadian and I've been thinking a lot more about how um, identity and morality are supposed need to be fused so your concept of the world as you go into the world I am a person who has this sense of compassion and it's part of who I am it's not just a a, you know like a coat I put on and take off in that sense and when you start to go to extremes all the time and you're not allowing people to find that middle ground you're losing the ability to develop that morality in a general sense and there's bigger um, bigger issues with that like Jordan Peterson we're talking about Jordan Peterson and his Mm -hmm. one of his things he talks about is the loss of a religious uh, flavor to society where no one has a seeks a higher understanding anymore it's because it doesn't really exist and so 
I think that in terms of solutions, if there is going to be some solutions, it's not just going to be chaos forever. It's going to have to be something that allows people to have differing points of view in terms of political alignments, but that there's a central moral, moral fabric where you're given that person the room to have their different opinions because you respect them as a living being in some way that is really more of a spiritual morality rather than just an abstract, you know, secular, you know, assumption in a sense. So I don't know where to exactly pull that into society best, <laughs> but I do know that. Um, but yeah, I think that's a big part of it is like, where do we find our identity and how do we solidify that identity to something that has the values we want uh, across the board? Yeah, actually, I think you're touching on something pretty, um, pretty deep. Uh, and the fact you bring up Jordan Peterson, I think Jordan Peterson is a great example of somebody who's um, fundamentally a well, I shouldn't say fundamentally. He's, he comes across as being a very logical person with the evidence-based um, perspectives of why he talks about certain things. But then if you look at where he's actually going, it's almost like he's this logical person that's delving into the spiritual side of himself. Mm -hmm. And he's been going very deep in it. He's been taking a lot of people with him. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think you're touching on a pretty key aspect that uh, this kind of... I'll say spiritual slash religious element of our society has been so denigrated for a long time. And it's almost like we're trying to seek, seek something new in that place. Mm -hmm. um, and where that's going, I don't know exactly. I would say more, it's on, it's more on the spiritual side. Um, religion is kind of disappearing, but, but spirituality is, is still always there. And, um, you know, it's a fundamental part of who we are. Like if you talk about um, native traditions, medicinal traditions, or actually you talk about the person who lives here has a medicinal background in herbology and so on. Um, and if you look at that, you know, what constitutes health, mm -hmm. it's mental, emotional, mm -hmm. spiritual, and physical. Absolutely. And of course, Western medicine only focuses on the physical, right? Mm -hmm. And our the rest of it gets ignored yeah um but that spiritual part of our society is it's like that's the weakest part of our society yeah. and so we're seeking out how to uh how to heal that or mm. strengthen it mm -hmm. um, and so all the different traditions we take on whether you know it's martial arts i mean martial arts is not just a physical thing right it's a spiritual practice mm -hmm. um and so, yeah, I think you're touching on, like, the mm -hmm. core of it, yeah, which is the spiritual part of our society is really, it's been under attack. We're trying to find something new. And the, the scary part is this, like, extreme left side mm -hmm. denies the spiritual part yes. of who we are. Yeah. And, in fact, communism always <laughs> annihilates religion and spirituality right away, yeah. right? Yeah. It doesn't exist. So... That theme actually is one of the themes um, in terms of the the component of the spiritual slash whatever you want to call that um, aspect of life is something I've been thinking about deeply for most of my adult life. I've always been drawn to the idea like what is beyond the five senses? What is what is the, and more than that is like what is the motivating factors behind people's lives really? Because you know, if, if you if you think of a person in like um, uh, isolation in like a jail or something, and they got all the food they need, they got all the 
the, the, the sustenance in that sense, but that's not life. And we all know this intuitively. We know that life can't just be physical survival. It has to be more. I recently did a podcast where I talked about compassion because I believe compassion is a big key to developing a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And I used, um, I think the guy's name is Maslow's Hierarchy of Human Potential, or I think that's how yep. you put it. Yep. And I, it was obvious that only on the first level of those needs was the physical needs. But beyond that was the needs of community involvement, um, pursuing your aims that you want in your life, and recognition. And it really what comes down to good social dynamics in society, in a sense. And like you said, um, the ideologies that are permeating, especially from the left, which tend to be so antithetical to spirituality that it's just incomprehensible that they could ever sort of balance. Mm -hmm. Um, and I find that really strange because growing up out here in, in the valley, you know, and lots of you know hippie, new agey people, um, th- they're very spiritually aimed, even if it's not necessarily as deep as they might think. But it is aimed that way. But then they get caught up in this ideology because it appeals to this sense of, you know, if you want to be a good person, you're gonna you're gonna uh, be anti-racist or something, right? Like it's an appeal to to the to a positive inclination that you want to do good in the world and be part of the community in a positive way but it's tricking them into this cutting them off from that reality of 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 that so yeah um yeah i think i think a lot of people that say they're religious are spiritual and a lot of people that say they're spiritual are actually religious Hmm. and so the way i would describe that in terms of definitions is i would say religion is you believe in a certain ideology. Okay. So it's religion is like the concept. Spirituality is the experience. Mm. And so some people come into this realm by experiencing something, mm-hmm. and then later find needing a, a a structural template to make sense of it, and then they become religious. Right. And other people start by going to church and hearing the concept, and then at some point they might have a spiritual experience. Mm. And then that crosses over. And so I wouldn't say one is better than the other. I mean, it's when I was when I was a teenager, I learned to windsurf by just doing it. Like I'd put the <laughs> sail up, you know, I'd catch the wind and get thrown right over. And it was just, nice. and eventually I would learn nice. how to do it. Yeah. And then I took sailing lessons later and went, oh, that's <laughs> why that would happen, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think of religion and spirituality kind of the same way. One is the experience, which yeah. is spirituality, and one is the concept right and so i think often what you find particularly in this valley and in the kootenays where you find the so-called mm-hmm. hippies right mm-hmm. is people say they're spiritual but they're actually religious mm. so they believe in a certain concept of what mm. god or whatever you want to call it is supposed to be and therefore how you're supposed to act and what your behavior is mm-hmm. and so if you don't have the spiritual experience and you only have that concept belief mm. you're very susceptible to anything that says i'm religious this is the new religion Mm. and under this new religion you should be this kind of person yeah right so that's that's really interesting because so so you're you're dividing up the category of religion and spiritual in the in in a context now where um religion can be something that is more uh intellectually based Mm -hmm. rather than experientially based where spirituality and I think that this is, I think that you could define these things in various ways, really, but it's a good enough work to work with, um, is, is more that you actually have an experience of some sort. 
And so, that, so, so one of the things that I think about with my teaching, because I do teach, I'm teaching martial arts and stuff, is you find that people um, think that they got themselves pretty well put together, but that you put a little stress on them, and then it just falls apart. And one of the things that I find fascinating and I love about teaching is helping people realize that actually if you don't engage in a process that allows you to overcome your um, instinctual fear responses, mm-hmm. you don't overcome them, right? It, 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 it isn't just given to you, right? So so people come into the dojo and they do a class and you, you do a self-defense technique, right? And the self-defense technique requires that somebody mimics an attack against you. They're not really trying to hurt, but they're physically moving at you with a punch or something, right? And as soon as your eyes see that for real, like a person's like, then the fear kicks in and then the response is just shut off. And so I think that that experiential element is a necessity for a person to develop an authentic kind of morality because then you can own the morality. It's not just intellectualized, I should do this because the community tells me I should do this. It's because, no, I know this is what's right and what's wrong because I've developed myself to overcome that kind of easily susceptible nature in that sense. So um, one of the things that I would love to see more of, I don't know how you would manifest this necessarily, is um, like uh, initiation rituals for young people to become adults. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so... uh, I, you know, I, I think in the martial art teaching I do, I'm trying to sort of alleviate some of that issue in, in the students I have. And I know that some there's yoga teachers and there's, I know people in the Valley here do um, uh, medicine retreats and some indigenous knowledge um, comes up through ceremonies that they put on and that kind of thing. But like, how could you, oh, the kitten's coughing up a furball. That's nice. <laughs> so everybody listening, that's a kitten <laughs> having a furball moment. Um, but, but. But yeah, so do you, do you see any room for that to grow right now with the way things are? Because we're, we're not allowed to get together generally. We're supposed to cover our faces, which I think is a big problem with connecting with people. And you know. uh, I, I think you and I probably both agree that uh, this whole COVID thing is just a, a ruse. Um, and I think a lot of people just go and live their lives, which is perfectly fine. Um, but getting back to this idea of the initiation, mm. I, I've thought about that quite a bit as well. And it's, it's, it's perhaps one of the breakdown or the, the, the points at which our society breaks down mm-hmm. is because, you know, in initiations, if you look at initiations, they're really about um, cementing an individual within society. Right. And there's the old African proverb, something about um, if you don't initiate the children into society, they'll burn down the village in order to feel the heat. <laughs> that's a good one. Right. Yeah. Like the, yeah. And that's where we're at now. So many yeah. of us feel like we're not actually com- um, committed. Maybe, committed is not the right word. We haven't been initiated into a society that we feel like our identity is glued to. Yes. Yes. So we're, we kind of wander in this sort of lost emptiness yeah i think the only place in our society where certainly for men they can feel like they do get kind of an initiation and rooted into the society is the military Mm. and so i think the martial arts aspect also brings that in as well there's something about um like you must have some sort of initiation rituals in some way i don't know (laughs) Well, there's the belt system, right? The belt system, yeah. It's a gradation of yeah. Yeah. Um, entry into a certain society. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, 
that's an interesting story. It's it, you don't have to go too much into it, but the belt system that everybody knows with karate, right? Because you know a black belt is like this thing, right? Um, it was put together in the early part of the twentieth century because up until that point there was no belt system because karate in particular was just taught on Okin in Okinawa, which is this island south of Japan, in secret essentially because. Mm. Up until the Meiji Restoration and the uh, modernization of Japan, um, the Okinawans weren't allowed to carry weapons, and so they had to learn how to do their self-defense behind the scenes sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so there was no need for belts. But what you had in that society, which is interesting, is you had these family lineages, essentially, that um, developed and kept this internal art to the, that protected the villages, right? And it was the, the people would literally be on guard to, against, um, say, in Okinawa, there's a lot of ships that would land and so there'd be like western sailors even sometimes but um anyway so so that's that's a whole other topic in a sense but you get into the modern uh, 20th century and karate becomes introduced first to mainland japan and then it gets introduced to north america a, a few decades later and there was a realization that you need to give people some sense of progress because mm -hmm. that's how people understand these kinds of things from this, the Western world and the and secular world. Um, but it's like they, did, they made it up in order to give the Westerners a way to make sense of their progress, but it's also filling a need that was not present in any other place, like you said, except for maybe the military. But the military is so overly committed to their role mm -hmm. that it's hard to be in the military and be like a, just an average person running a grocery store or something, right? So, so, yeah, I think the martial arts have a certain amount of value there. But So I want to go back actually, sure, into this. When I was a young man, growing up in the valley, I got very frustrated with authority in general. I was just not happy being told what to do. By the time I was like 14, 15, 16, I was, I was done with that. Um, and me and my friends, including my friend Nathaniel, whose place this is, we uh, unconsciously initiated ourselves into adulthood in very dangerous ways in some ways. Yeah. And I look back on it, and I'm pretty amazed I survived some of it because it was pretty crazy. But it's a drive that you have, like it's in there to have. And I, and and it was, I keep coming back to this right now with our conversation is, your identity needs to have a root in which it can connect with society and feel good about that, and also have a moral grounding underneath that, so that the involvement in society is accountable. Right? You're not just burning down shit to feel the heat because. That's all you, you know, we don't have any think, thinking beyond that. So, I mean, I don't know what the solutions we can like point at exactly, but the framework is there, right? I, yeah, you, you know, I, I think we wandered off a little bit on um, a number of things, but if we get back to the basics of this initiation, I mean, a, a true initiation is basically a one-time event yeah. where you go from being a certain uh, member in society and after the initiation, that ends yeah. and you now pick up new powers and new responsibilities yeah right um and you can't go back yeah so you might have been a boy and now you're mad yeah yeah uh, but you have new powers and new responsibilities yeah and we don't have that in our society anymore we've been very good over a few hundred years of eliminating those initiation rights mm -hmm. so that we fit into uh, a bigger society maybe called the nation state or whatever you want to call it. um but there is that like deep fundamental underlying drive to be uh, initiated. Yeah. And if you can't get it from your society, you do it yourself. So as you were telling that story, I was like, I have done that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I remember I was 
And I didn't realize it at the time, but now I think about it and I realize, yeah, I was essentially trying to do a self-initiation, yeah. which was going from a boy to being a man. Yeah. Um, or going from being dependent on the family unit to being independent. Yeah. And I just went out for three days with you know, a match, the clothes on my back, Did you? and a gun. And that was it, right? <laughs> and cool. so I went out into the woods and like no sleeping bag, nothing. Just <laughs> This was a matter of I walked into the woods as far as I could go until it was dark. And then once it was dark, I knew I couldn't walk back, right? <laughs> so now it's like, well, I have to survive in the woods for the night. Yeah, yeah. And you do. You build a fire yeah, and there's yeah. like wild animals that come around as the bear comes down the coyote <laughs> and, and you're kind of scared a little bit because you've never done it before but yeah you go through that and yeah. once you come out of it you feel like you know what i did that yeah but it's still never quite enough yeah. because it's the society hasn't recognized done, hasn't recognized yeah. it and hasn't it hasn't forced you to do it right yeah. initiation is almost a force of you're going into this yeah. and if you come out the other side yeah. you're part of the society yeah yeah well, I, I know like the first nations in the okanagan have a, uh, an initiation right where it's very similar yeah they actually send their kids off they take they walk you know whatever it is 11 12 13 year old boys out into the woods and they set up a little camp and they go to sleep and uh, this this is only what i've heard okay. so yeah, yeah, fair enough. you know i i'm probably not telling it correctly but essentially they go out and the, the men that take them out then leave in the middle of the night uh, and make them go back on their own, right? So yeah. they have to work as a group yeah. and they have to get through this yeah. thing together. Yeah. Meanwhile, the men are always off in the, the hills just watching, watching them, making yeah. sure yeah, they're okay, they're fine. Yeah. But then when they come back, they feel like they're welcomed back into the society. And it's like, you just went through yeah. you know, some sort of uh, hardship. Mm-hmm. Do you want to be part of the society? Yeah. And it's like, yes, we do. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. So I want to pick up on that theme a little bit because whenever we talk, whenever I talk to people about uh, initiation and, and all these kinds of things, I always think about the first time I read uh, *Hero with a Thousand Faces* by Joseph Campbell. Oh yeah, okay. It's a fantastic book, and I, I recommend it. And he talks about this exact thing because the hero's path has to have this initiation process in it because basically what the hero is as an archetype is, to me, this is my reading of it, is a fully individually manifest person in society so they take responsibility for themselves they they understand that there's no guarantees and they're going to just do the best they can and they're going to be accountable to their decisions and and they're and they're committed to the group as well as themselves like all these things coming together anyway he joseph cannibals from what i remember was a group of indigenous people from papua new guinea and they were they've been keeping the same cultural patterns alive for for many many thousands of years and the, the young boy, and, and I, I wouldn't mind coming back to this at some point because there's a difference between initiations for boys and girls in a lot of these cultures. But So this was a young boy initiation. And um, uh, up until uh, he notices females, until they note, when, they, when he looks at a female and they realize that he's looking at her because she's attractive and they, oh, you got to initiate this guy, right? Yeah. So they would, uh, he would have been exposed as a child to um, some rites and um, some ceremonies and such in which there would have been members of the community wearing these masks that represent the gods. And the gods, of course, are basically like elemental elements, right? Like the, the mountain or the storms or whatever. And in the middle of the night, going back to the middle of the night thing, he gets woken up in his little hut 
and it's the elder males of the village wearing these masks, take them out into the bush and put them through a pretty intense process. And in the end of that process, give them a mask to wear, to take part in that role in the community of being the people who are embodying the structure of their society and I say policing it to some degree maybe be the right way to put it, but but engaged in that sense, right? And then he can't go back to the hut he was growing up in because that was where his mother raised him and now he has to have to go to a new hut and all this. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it hits on all the right check marks, right? It hits on all of the elements that need to be there. And um, I, it, 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 to come back to like, you know, we both feel like we tried to do that when we were younger because it wasn't there for us. But the need for that to occur is deeper than just like a intellectual indulgent thing. It's like a biological need. Like it's really a big part of what makes humans humans, essentially. Um, now, I again, I don't know. We can do, you know, karate, we have gradings and there's a certain amount of that process goes on in the grading. You know, you don't see it in schools. You don't see any concept of, of helping the kids develop any relationship to their unconscious, to their right brain in that sense, because it's all part of what that's about. Um, and it's very dangerous. Like, it's very dangerous. I lost at least two friends I can think of off the top of my head to their youthful shenanigans that they probably wouldn't have done if they had had that opportunity. Yeah. And so, so maybe I can bring it back to this. Do you have, do you, what, what, do you have any sort of sense of how... That, that seeping ideological change that's come through the media and the modern sense has undermined people's ability to even consider these kinds of initiations or, or, or ritual use in society in that sense. Um, I think if you go back, you know, as I was saying before, a couple hundred years of this, this economic structure that we know as the nation state has has had to kind of remove those mm. those parts of us um, to kind of infuse us from being mostly local societies that would have honored these kinds of yeah. traditions yeah. to much larger societies yeah. uh, that that don't. And now you've got the left that wants to go even larger, right, to one centralized government mm-hmm. where there would be really no local communities that have a sense of place and a sense of these um the the need for these underlying biological initiations and other drives um so how do we get there i i don't know i think it's i think you and i both recognize there is a need to recognize this underlying um, whatever you want to call it a spiritual drive or it's it's deeper than a biological drive but it gets into something that's about the hero's journey mm-hmm. of Joseph Campbell's, you know, structure. Um, it, I, I, so I have to tell you a story of, um, <laughs> I, I think on one sense we could say, here's the intellectual part of recognizing we need to get back to initiation rites that glue people into their society. But I think there's also just, sometimes we just start doing things that feel right and just seem right and we just do it. Um, so at my high school, Kelowna Secondary School, hmm. we had this tradition called grad napping. And I thought everyone did this at the time. But what it was is in your grade 12 year, all of um, so 
all of the students would be involved in this thing called grad napping. It was basically all the girls would go to the guy's house at night, <laughs> pick them up, oh, yeah. dress them up in women's clothing, oh, yeah. and then parade them around town. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then another night, you know, the guys would do the same, go oh. to the girls' places and huh. kidnap them. Uh. Of course, it was always, you know, you'd phone the parents ahead and say, we're going to do grad napping on this. And it's like, so make sure your daughter's wearing, <laughs> you know, something to bed. And, you know, <laughs> all those things are put into place. But it was still this idea that the women would huh. kidnap the guys and dress them up like women, hmm. and the men would do the same and dress the women like men. Interesting. And if you look at societies around the world, you actually see that common pattern. Hmm. I think it's in Nigeria or somewhere in Central Africa they, they do that as well, where the men have to dress up as women for a certain period of time hmm. and play the women's role, and the women hmm. have to do the opposite. And so it's almost like this this reverse role playing, right? So you get a sense of what the other side is. Yeah. Is like and, right to appreciate the, yeah 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 um and where that came from i have no idea but i've i told this to other people like we never did that in our high school oh no yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, anyway um i never made it to high school by the time i was in grade nine i got kicked out of all public schools because i was just not going along with things that's mm-hmm. another story but um i know couch in high school here that i don't remember anything like that from my friends that went there so yeah that's kind of a unique one but but you're right like a lot of the cultures around the world would have initiation rituals which i, I think are largely just aimed at like developing an appreciation for the role you play in society because mm-hmm. children naturally are dependent to the point that they don't even need to think about how society works right like a seven-year-old explain infrastructure to them right like no there's no point yeah. but when you get to be an adult you need to know that you know the food at the grocery store comes from some people doing things that make that possible that this house you know this place was built by somebody the electricity comes because people put work in to make that happen and you're a part of that. You're a part of that fabric that makes all this stuff possible. Um, and, and I think what you said was really interesting about uh, the nation state and the role that that plays in identity. Because, as I said, like one of my th- things I've been thinking about a lot right now is, is the role identity and morality play together, the dynamic between those two things. Mm-hmm. And so if you're, if you're in a culture where there's, it's so homogenized and, and large-scale, like let's say North America, right? Like there's no way that I can identify as a North American and mean anything because it's such a broad spectrum of possibilities. But if I grew up like in the Valley here um, and the people I know personally know that are involved in the, you know, the farmers or the whatever, then my identity and my sense of self can come from something tangible to me. And so the initiations that we're talking about would need to allow a person to engage in that fabric of their direct community rather than just mm-hmm. this crazy abstraction that is the global village that I don't see being very useful. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I think maybe though that that's where, where it can start is just people recognizing that, hey, you know, we need to particularly say give young people a chance to to be recognize their role in the community and be recognized for being part of the community, there's that's enough to get the ball rolling, I think, if it's understood well enough by people, right? Yeah. Which may may or may not be the case, but um, I think we're on the right track uh, in these conversations, right? Yeah. Yeah. I. I you know, there's always a conflict between wanting to be a, a global citizen and a local citizen. Mm-hmm. Right? And some people lean more towards the global and some people lean more to the local. But but both are kind of necessary. Mm-hmm. Except we've definitely 
pushed far too much emphasis on the global side. Mm -hmm. And particularly in North America, as you say, like you're North American, what the hell does that mean, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think you've seen this pushback. We're we're seeking this identity that's more local and definable. Mm -hmm. Like you even said community, and I was thinking, okay, what do you mean by community? Mm -hmm. And I, there seems to be certain things that help identify a community. One is language. Sure. Right. Like if you're Finnish. Yeah. Well, you're Finnish. You're like nobody speaks Finnish. You just you're Finnish. Yeah. So, I see one of the battlegrounds right now is language. Interesting. A lot of people are kind of seeking out um, greater identity through language. Hmm. And um, like we can identify someone in North America that say a New Yorker versus <laughs> uh, someone from Seattle. Sure. And, and we take identity in that language or that accent. Yeah. And in fact, we get quite proud of it, right? Wherever we are. Yeah, yeah. And I think what we're really doing is we're trying to create these boundaries on a community. And one is through language. Hmm. Um, that, there's, but we've seen the centralization of language over the past 50 years or so, which is kind of concomitant with centralization of nation states and so on. Yeah. Except you're now seeing a switch like, um, so I've been learning a little bit of Danish and my Danish teacher said, that's what you saw is like Danish became more and more centralized into the Copenhagen accent. But now the young people who are like 20 years old, they're now picking up the accent from like their grandmothers and grandfathers and great grandmothers and, and also creating new accents that are very locally based. Interesting. And it's like, they're, they're forcing this idea of. I'm going to identify myself as a community through my language in this specific geographic place. Interesting. Because that, that, that component of identity uh, through language is, it's a tricky one when you want to counterbalance the local with the global, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think what you said is really true is like um, a certain amount of uh, an awareness of both is important, right? Like if we just hyper-focused on the Cowichan Valley and never thought about Canada or never thought about BC or never thought about the world, you know, that isn't going to really make things better ultimately because we do need to coordinate the world to some degree. But, yeah. But, but what I think is, is, is the key there is, is like, okay, so I never heard that thing about the um, Danish language. Um, and the, it, It's not something that you'd ever find on Wikipedia. No. It's like people just are sort of like, yeah, I'm hearing, you know, people yeah. out in West Jutland yeah. that used to have this distinct accent and it disappeared in 50, over 50 years. It's now coming, coming back. back. Okay, yeah, so, so so that that's part of that desire for identity, right? That mm-hmm. I want to know that I have a unique role within this great tapestry of this world. Yeah. Okay, good. That's, that's a good drive. Because I think that that's the basis from which global cooperation could come. Because... If 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 the if your, if your identity is this abstract homogenous meaningless thing that you can't grasp, then you're not going to have any sort of sense of self that you can take into the exchanges you have, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas you need to have a local identity to have a sort of I say provincial or larger scale identity, and then to have a federal identity, and then so forth, right? Like that starts with that, right? Yeah. And so that's a really interesting, um, like, because the language thing is. It's, 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 it's like if everybody talked different languages, we'd never be able to talk to each other. But at the same time, we do need to develop identity through that to some degree. So it's, it's a really interesting balance. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure how you'd approach 
that in, in, in terms of like, uh, you know, English speakers, right? We, I guess I have a bit of an accent coming from this area of the world to people that aren't coming from this area yep. of the world, but I've never identified it in my mind, right? Like in, in that sense. So, yeah. It, well, um, I actually wrote a book. I put it on Amazon. It was you know, just self-published, but it was called mm. The Rules of Invasion. Mm. And it looks at um, the patterns in the natural world like why plants and animals exist where they do and what happens when a new species comes in mm. and, you know, what's, what happens over time. And then I correlated that with humans. Because in place, we'll have a certain identity, but, if, yeah. but sometimes certain human groups will go out and spread and invade a certain part. But what happens to them over time? Yeah. Um, and I think the easiest way to look at that is to say, you can look at, say, the Roman Empire, you know, spread out, and it became this one giant... Um, empire where everyone spoke the Roman the dialect of Latin mm -hmm. but as it broke down of course all of these other languages slowly emerged you know you ended up from yeah. Latin you got French right. and, uh, English and eventually got you know you got Spanish and even from Spanish broke away you got this group that eventually became Portuguese yeah. and and so I think you're actually seeing that in North America right now hmm where if we were to give it enough time you would see like uh, we wouldn't be able to speak to an albertan for example <laughs> <laughs> but in bc we probably wouldn't be able to well, so let me back up so the biodiversity is very much connected to geography yeah so the greatest biodiversity in canada is in the geographic boundary of what we call british columbia yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's like 60% of our biodiversity is in British Columbia. The other 40% is all the way to the Atlantic coast. Right. And if you look at indigenous languages pre-European, mm. it's the same pattern. Interesting. It's like 60% of all the languages, uh. British Columbia. The other 40% of languages, to the Atlantic coast. Okay. So I've never actually made the connection in my mind to biodiversity and language, mm. but it makes sense. As soon as you say it, I go, oh yeah, of course, because human beings are products of the natural world. We're, and that's one of those things where I, I wish more people would think about that. But, you know, like a, a tree emerged out of nature on the planet, and so did you. And that inclination to, to, to sort of identify through that aspect of the environment you're in, right, is, is really interesting. So I never made the connection to language, but I see it. So mm -hmm. my brother... Uh, as soon as he got out of high school, uh, he went out to Alberta, got a job in the oil fields, and he's never come back. Like so many, yeah. And, um, I, you know, I, I, it's his, you know, I, I love him. I wouldn't mind having him around more, but it's, you know, he, he's Albertan now. Like, he's become this person that I can just, you can just tell that he, he's acclimatized himself to that environment. Um, whereas I love the coast. I love the ocean. I love the trees. And so... It's interesting how people naturally will do that. They will just sort of, yeah. Actually, yeah, my book talks about that quite a bit. It's, it's got a semi-environmental determinist um, perspective to it, which mm. is the environment shapes who we are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, and some people will say, well, that's not completely true, and I'd say absolutely. It's, you know, <laughs> the environment doesn't shape you 100%, but it has a pretty strong influence on yeah. you. Yeah. And I lived in Alberta for yeah. 12 years, um, 
And even in my book, I write about how I had to actually change my driving habits to become more Albertan. Sure. Yeah. And I, I was try, like mentally trying to understand why they drive that way and why we drive a slightly different way. Right. And it's often simple things like, you know, when Albertans merge onto the highway, they'll gun it and they'll get in front of the person that's driving on the road. Oh, yeah. And we usually pull in. Like, it's like, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I'll pull in behind, right? <laughs> Right. Whereas they've got this aggressive, I'm going yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it does change people wherever you live. And I talk about why the environment would do that to say Albertans make them more aggressive and why on the West Coast we might be a little bit, let's say, polite. <laughs> sure. That's how we'll describe it. Yeah. Um, but, um, oh yeah, so this ethno-linguistic connection between biodiversity is actually... A woman who got her PhD, and she was originally from Salt Spring Island, I believe. Hmm. Um, a woman named Louisa Maffey. Okay. She's now part of a group that really talks about this connection between biodiversity and cultural diversity mm-hmm. and the proxy of language. Hmm. So wherever you find the highest biodiversity, uh, you also find the greatest linguistic diversity. Oh, interesting. And so uh-huh. here in the sort of West Coast, Pacific Northwest, if you want to call it, we have some of the greatest... Um, uh, geographic diversity, sure. which has led to some of the greatest biological diversity, yeah. which has also implanted the greatest linguistic diversity pre-European. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, th- I mean, in my book, I make this argument that if you give it enough time, we'll go back yeah. to like a thousand years ago where the greatest number of languages are on the West Coast and the rest of the continent is kind of <laughs> a little less, <laughs> except Florida. <laughs> Florida. Well. Um, okay, but if that were to occur, my first thought would be like, we'd still need to have a language we communicate with people from Alberta from, right? So yeah. it would be more like a regional dialect that would have its own, like 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 somebody from Newfoundland has that kind of thing going on. Yeah. But you still have to be able to communicate with somebody from Saskatchewan, right? Yeah. And, and, and pre-European, I, you know, I imagine they had trade routes, but they weren't like, you know, I could call my brother in Alberta right now, right? And just chat with him. Yeah. So... Do you think that that we could ever really go back to the point where it's like, like there's distinct borders, or it's just going to be kind of like this regional dialect gets a little heavy here, and then when a person from there goes to talk to someone else from another area, they can sort of pull down on that and and make. Sure, that's how languages work, right? Yeah. They, they change slowly. Yeah. And they change even more slowly the the closer one neighbor is to the next yeah you know if you're right beside the other neighbor they might have a couple different words yeah Uh, but if you get far enough away Mm. like you know between british Columbia and newfoundland that's a long ways away yeah and we're at the point where i don't know about you but i can't understand half of the (laughs) newfies outside of saint john's yeah um yeah and actually so i grew up in the okanagan and there's uh, a fellow that teaches at ubc now and he noticed that he could actually tell when his students were in his class, he could tell who was from the Okanagan and he couldn't figure out why it was. He just knew that oh. there was something like the little things they said or just oh. the phrases. And so he got um, some researchers. He got some grant money, I think it was, to get some researchers to see if there was actually a difference between uh, the way the people, the Okanagan speak versus, say, in Vancouver. Huh. And it is very subtle. Yeah. And it's the same here too, right? The yeah. Cowichan Valley... If you listen really closely, huh. um, the, the intonations, certain things that the way people say it in the Cowichan Valley is huh. different than the way the average person says it in Victoria. 
It's really subtle, but it's there. Okay, so so it's not so much that it's emer- evolving into like distinct different languages. It's more that it's like like you said, Latin sort of dispersing into these variants that became later on languages. Yeah. Now that makes sense. Um, I know that when I go to Alberta, there's an Alberta inflection to the voice that I pick up on. Yeah. You know, my brother teases me, and I tease him about it a little bit too, right? Because it's kind of fun. Yeah. But but yeah, okay. So that makes sense. That totally makes sense. And. You know, language is such an important tool for the involvement of everything in society. Because I actually the the podcast that I haven't uploaded yet, but I'm going to upload um, when I get back home tonight is um, is well partly on uh, the fact I don't like masks, I don't like the, the masking, yeah. but the importance of communication and and how visual cues and um, body language and um, um, emotional content are communicated non verbally, and how that's especially with children, you know, you're cutting them off from that when you don't see a face. Um, because how we communicate with each other, it's in a, it has to be part of our, our movement forward into the future. It just has to be. Like, we cannot um, sustain society in any way without that. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, the language thing, just because, it's an interesting element I hadn't really been thinking about in terms of that direction of how I would, you know, go, but, um, but it is an important one. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> I, I think you see it mostly in indigenous people too, right? They're, yeah. they've always said that their culture has been yeah. decimated. And the one thing that they're trying to get back first before anything else language. is the language. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the words that you think become the vehicles for your thoughts, which become your ability to communicate, which is your ability to have any effect, in, in, in effect on the world. Because mm-hmm. if I couldn't communicate with you, all I could do is like wave my arms around. It doesn't mean anything, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, so like in a martial art context, um, people from Okinawa, that Okinawans had their own dialect and it was somewhat different than the Japanese mainland dialect, quite a bit different actually in the old days. Um, the, the, the old masters from pre modern times would say that you have to learn Okinawan to truly get karate mm-hmm. and I wonder about that because I don't know Okinawan right <laughs> but I've heard some explanations and it's like there is something about the way that the language communicates certain more esoteric less you know that like a table is a table but like what do you mean by uh, your, your 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 sense of humility in in your role in the society like these these subtle things that make everything sort of uh, the human world so complex um, that languaging has a huge effect, I'm sure, on that. And, and, and um, I, have, I don't know if you keep up with Peterson's podcast too much, but he did an interview recently with um, a woman named Yemeni Park, okay. who is a escapee from North Korea. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's a heavy, heavy thing, right? Because her life was crazy. But one of the things she mentions that really stood out to me, and I just realized how important this is now, is they didn't have a word for love when she grew up. Oh, Interesting. Because so that concept didn't exist, right? You couldn't express how much you loved your parents because you, there's no word to describe it, mm. and that's scary shit, yeah. right? Because you language is, I think it's might have been might have been like you know, um, 1984, one of those you know uh, books that predicts a lot of shit that's going on right now, um, talks about taking words out of the language that give the person the ability to think critically. Mm-hmm. And I think that it w- even worse would be the ab- inability to to express gratitude and love for your family, for your friends, or whatever. So yeah, that all comes back to language. That all comes back to the ability to do that. Yeah. I think there's another part in there too. This kind of 1984ish dystopian future of languages. Um, 
the the need to be so careful about being ambiguous. Mm. And I've heard it I've heard it said that the more totalitarian a society becomes, the more ambiguous the language becomes. Mm. So nobody can ever say you said this and now you must go to the gallows. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, I mm. I was talking about a very ambiguous thing. Yeah. And you hear it in all the political speeches. The oh, the cat is back. The kitten is uh, trying to get into the pickle jar. Leave it alone. <laughs> but, yeah, no, um, that's something that I find, um, again, I haven't thought about it in the context of language. I'm really great, grateful you brought that up because it gives me a sense to reflect on that more. But, like, um, and I'm teaching a class, right? Mm-hmm. And I say to somebody, do you know this technique? Or do you know this, I don't know if you know what a kata is, but a no. prearranged sequence of movements that sort of is the basis of the learning. Okay. And so you know this kata, and a person will be like, well, kind of, and a maybe, and, a, and you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes or no. Because <laughs> if, if you can't own what you are actually capable of, then you can't be relied on. Mm-hmm. So the analogy I often use with people is, say, imagine you're in a war, and I said, can you go take that hill? Right, and the person's like, "Well, maybe you know." Like, well, you go to the back of the line, or you, whatever. Right? Um, we need to have that sort of sense of authority within ourselves about what we, we we can and can't do. And I think that that that's one of the ways that this authoritarianism that's creeping into the world—not creeping, but it's coming into the world—is so ugly to me. Is this lack of accountability that comes with it, which, as you said, isn't this ambiguous bullshit about I'm just gonna pretend that I don't know what you're talking about or or right now it's like none of the politicians seem willing to even consider the idea that maybe some of the stuff they've been doing for the last year and a half is wrong yeah. right and and that's so dangerous it's, to me I think it shows a lack of courage right yeah it's totally about courage yeah. somebody will be ambiguous if they aren't willing to stay say yes or no yeah and just one of the things I love about this podcast actually is that we're just kind of talking freely and you know, throwing some swear words here and there. Well, whatever, right? It's yeah. like we're just—it's almost like we're sitting on the couch and just shooting well, that, the shit. That's the point. That's the point. Um, I think in the back of our mind, we're both maybe um, censoring ourselves just a tiny bit, but not that much, right? <laughs> sure. That's the beauty of the podcast. Sure. Um, whereas a political speech, mm. you're always trying to be semi-ambiguous, so you yeah. never offend too many people. Yeah. And. Perhaps that's one of the differences with Maxine Bernier and why people have been so attracted to him. Mm. Is he just says stuff like, "This is the way it is." Yeah. Like, "This is bullshit." These other parties, they all suck, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Like, what politician would say those guys suck? Right? <laughs> and he gets a little bit of flack for it, but who cares? Because yeah. most people say or can see he's just being genuine. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's one of those things that is ruining political discourse though is the fear of offending people mm-hmm. as in it like you talk about the initiation thing right so yeah you're talking to an eight-year-old you're gonna want to be careful about what you say to them because if you say to an eight-year-old you know you suck right uh, they're gonna take that to heart and you you, you, have, you don't do it right as a kid you want to give them the opportunity to grow so but you're gonna be an adult Adults have to be able to weigh things and think on their own and make their own decisions. That's the whole point of becoming an adult, right? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up with a mother who had some really wonderful sayings. Even I didn't realize when I was young. But one of them was, if somebody says something to you and it upsets you, that's your fault. Yeah. Right? You don't blame them. You, you be, Maybe if they're threatening you, you're aware of it. But you don't, you don't take it on as if they somehow have an authority that you can't, you have to, dis, you know, undermine. 
Um, but without that ability to speak freely and, and, and not censor yourself, we can't have proper discussions. And without proper discussions, we can't do sense making. We can't actually make sense of the world. Because, mm -hmm. like, as you said, this conversation is very casual in that sense. But that means that we're actually talking and we're actually hearing each other. And we're, I'm really hearing what you really think, I think. <laughs> yeah. I'm sharing with you the best I can and articulating my thoughts as best I can. Yeah. It's not inauthentic in any way. And that's, I mean, we need, it's not just that it's nice, it's necessary, I think. Um, yeah. And which is why I started the podcast, actually. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a friend, um, uh, Mike, up in the Okanagan, and whenever I see him, we, we have these great chats where we just sit down on the, you know, on his porch and, um, well, often debate issues, right? Yeah. And, and the idea, of course, is you take a position that you wouldn't normally defend, and then you defend it, and he does oh, the opposite, yeah. right? That's yeah. the classic debate material. Yeah. And I love those, because yeah. then you really have to think about the other side, and you've got yeah. to make a cogent argument about why this is particularly right or maybe where some of the deficiencies are and, and we don't have that en enough anymore i agree i agree well, well we don't have that debate and we don't have enough of just sitting and talking yeah. like we're doing yeah um and of course masks get in the way of that fear gets in the way of that yeah uh cancel culture gets in the way of that it all gets in the way yeah yeah, yeah. so when i wrote this art article um you know, I got completely, I'd say I got canceled. Mm. People were, as I say, calling me all these different things. And I even had people around me saying, oh, you got to apologize. Just like, you got, like, maybe you can write something. Don't apologize. No, and I was like, there's no way I'm going to apologize. Yeah. Like, there's no way I'm going to bend over. You know? mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't you want to do that. Um, so, the need for conversation, I don't think could be stressed enough. In, in right now because as as you said and I said you know like it's it's not just refreshing it's not just enjoyable but it's it's a necessity to develop dialogues that give you ability to make sense of the world to be able to function in the world um, what I feel like you know you've experienced this I'm sure too to a large degree you come across somebody who's very sensitive to a particular topic mm -hmm. and sometimes that's coming from a place where they've had personal trauma and then you want to be very sensitive about it to honor that but other times it's more like an ideological bend where they're like I just don't want to talk about this but the thing is even if it's real trauma it won't be dealt with by ignoring it and if it's just an ideological bend it's almost like you're creating a false but mimicking traumatic neural connections in the brain by taking a subject and saying I, that's off limits but that subject still exists so if somebody says the phobia of, of spiders, right? Spiders still exist. You're not mm -hmm. gonna like pretend they don't. But if it's if it's something to do with like like um, I I personally have a opinions that I, I don't like um, puberty blockers for pre adolescent kids. I really think that's wrong. Um, but you bring it up with somebody who's sensitive about that subject ideologically, and you can't have a conversation. And it, it isn't that, you know, I necessarily would want to have a conversation where I'm like, you're, you're, you're fucking stupid, right? I, that, that's not the conversation I want. I want to just actually talk and have an exchange. So that's where the name of the podcast came up for me was, um, all my life, actually, I've been thinking about this. Um, Carl Jung has a quote, uh, which I'm I have to paraphrase, but it's, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to keep from facing their own minds. Mm -hmm. And that's the shadow, that's the dark, quote-unquote, content that 
people put off and that's what this is the dark path it's to go into that and say let's bring it up and let's look at it not with you know not to judge it but to just look at it so i think that's kind of like what you know what what you're doing what i'm doing too in, in different ways is 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 let's say hey look look at, look at these things that aren't being dealt with because they're damaging the overall fabric of society and it's not going to go to a good place if we don't get our hands uh, handle on this um but that 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 desire to avoid um, the content that is kept in the subconscious dark is pathological, right? That's what really that is. It's 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 avoidance to the as an adult. It's an avoidance to us to, to damage the world in that sense. So so to flip that coin a little bit, um, we talked about the idea that maybe um, in reintroducing some kind of initiation rituals. I would say ritual on a larger scale, as long as it's done in a certain context, might be quite valuable. Mm. Having better dialogue, communication, making sure that conversations could go in any direction they need to, as long as it's done respectfully and intelligently. But um, is there anything else that you would uh, maybe throw into that pot and say that these might be solutionary, solution-aimed things? Uh, you just said there's one element in that that I would slightly disagree with, and it's not going to be very... Uh, popular but you said <laughs> conversations should be respectful um i think one of the problems is we do try to be a little bit soft and this idea of respectful um and sensitive mm, and it's oh, actually a, yeah. a bit of you actually said it yourself it's a bit of a problem that we're almost oversensitive to certain things yeah. um there's an element that a lot of us or a, something that most of us don't want to do and we have to do it and that is to, as a friend of mine once said mark sometimes you have to be okay with hurting people yes and so i'll give you this example and i mean i've got an example of myself as well but i'll give a i'll give an example of uh the first time i saw this was this old saying that sometimes you have to knock sense into people. And at first I thought that was just a metaphor. But I actually saw it literally one day yeah. when I was younger. I was with uh, two friends. We were out canoeing on Okanagan Lake. And I was up front and my friend in the middle, we'll call him B, and at the back and there was a guy named J. Mm. Okay. <laughs> B and J. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so B had this un irrational fear of being impaled in the water like if he ever fell in the water there'd be some sort of pole and he'd get impaled on it it was, oh. it was a weird okay phobia that he had and i knew of this phobia from other things he had done sure. anyway we're out in this canoe <laughs> and it's a calm day and we're quite a ways from the shore but it's you know you can see it you could swim to it it'd take a while but hmm. the wind starts to pick up and the waves start to get a little bit bigger and the canoe starts to rock a little <laughs> bit and bees in the middle he starts to this panic this yeah. irrational panic starts to come over and he's like, oh guys we need to be really we need to be really careful here yeah 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 <laughs> wind picks up even more the waves get bigger and bigger and now the canoe is rocking and we're starting to take on a little bit of water mm. and now he's really panicking yep and so the guy at the back jay he's a bit of an asshole <laughs> i like him now <laughs> he goes Oh no! And so B's in the water, yeah. And Jay's in the water. I'm in the water. I'm kind of pissed off because I just lost a pair of binoculars. They're down at the bottom of the lake. <laughs> but whatever. Okay. Yeah. And so we have life jackets, but of course we're, you know, 16 and we haven't put them on. <laughs> yeah. So they're floating on the water. Yeah. Now B's completely panicking. Uh huh. And Jay goes, 
put on your life jacket. Yeah. And, and he, but his panic gets even worse. He's like, oh, we're going to drown and we're going to die. Yeah. An irrational panic. Yeah. So Jay swims over to him and he just goes, put on your life jacket. <laughs> and just pounds him. <laughs> and it was like, it snapped him out it of it. It snapped him out yeah. of it. And he put yeah. his life jacket yeah. on and everything was fine. Yeah. So, so I think you're right. And I'm not, I should maybe clarify what I was saying a little bit. Because when I say um, respectful, I don't mean um, so overly concerned about people's emotional response to what you're saying that you don't say the truth. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a, again, I did a podcast where I talked about compassion. And there's a chapter in a book that you have to read in the dojo when you join the class um, by a guy named Funakoshi Gichin. He's a famous karate teacher. The title of the chapter is Compassion Without Pity. And he tells a story about him as a younger man in Okinawa and being uh, going down to, they had uh, community outhouse areas, you might say, something like that, they had these places, and he was making doing his business, and he was coming away from it. And a guy ran past him on the path, and the guy pushed him out of the way, but he was you know well-trained martial artist, so when he got pushed, he turned and kicked the guy. The guy trips and falls into the cesspool. <laughs> and it's really awful, right? Yep. And uh, so he, you know, he's a nice guy. He helps him out and, you know, it's pretty gross. But then the guy just runs away again. And he was like, that's weird. But anyways, whatever. He goes about his business. He's walking back up the path and he comes across two police officers. Or the equivalent of police officers, whatever that was. And they say, oh, that guy that ran past you, um, he escaped. And he's actually a rapist murderer. And we need to catch him. Can you help us? Because he, he was known as a karate master, so he could do that. And so they went and found the guy, which was quite easy considering the shape he was in. He was kind of beat up and covered in shit, quite literally. Um, and the police officers were going to take him off to the jail, and, and of course. But Funakoshi said, let him clean himself off. Let's go to a well and let him actually get this crap off his body. And then you go take him to the jail. And his point was, because that guy would have been executed at that time in Okinawa. That would have been... The, it was not to avoid the consequences and try to make it so that... He, 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 you know, falsely, false sense of, of, uh, of his, his overall safety. But just that even if he's fucked up that badly, he's still a human being that doesn't deserve to be covered in shit. Yeah. And that's what I mean by respectful is I can think your opinion's ridiculous and I'll tell it to your face, but I don't hate you and I don't want you to be, you know, punished for having a stupid opinion necessarily. What I want is the respect of, both of us being able to say honestly what's in our hearts and our minds. That's what I mean. Like, And so if I put something on the table that you don't like, that's up to you how you respond to it. That's mm-hmm. And if I get concerned about that, the pity, right? That's pity rather than the compassion of saying, you know, I know you're another being. You have the right to exist. You have the right to your own opinions. But this is what I fucking think, mm-hmm. right? So th- that's how I see that balance. Yeah, yeah. That's just having sort of a, a dignity for some somebody else right yeah yeah and dignity and compassion sure like yeah. one of the things i would i would do is if uh, like i would i would sit here and i would argue with somebody who has complete opposite opinions with me yeah and i'd be happy to do that and i would tell them i don't agree with that i don't agree with this whatever but i'm never going to be like i hate you and i want you hurt you like that's that's completely opposite of my whole thing in life right mm-hmm. so yeah so I, I like i'm glad you brought that up though to to, to clarify that because it, it i think real compassion is also the courage to speak truth. Yeah. And I think it's recognizing where somebody is at. Mm. Like, and then the story I told, you know, this friend B was not in any logical place yeah, where he yeah. could rationally think yeah. things out. Yeah. Um, so something else had to happen to kind of snap him out of that yeah. irrational fear. That's right. Yeah. 
Um, so in that moment, you know, perhaps the most compassionate thing was to punch him in the face. Sure. Not to punch him 25 times. Right. Just enough to right. snap him out of yeah. the moment he was in. Yeah, no, I am... Um... A similar story. I was um, many years ago. I was I was working for a, a, a contract crew doing forest firefighting, and uh, we, one of the contracts we had was to do a perimeter um, sort of march around this fire that burnt out, just to make sure it didn't spread again. Mm-hmm. And so one of the guys on the crew was from Ontario, and he had no idea how to move around in the bush. Right? Like, we say bush legs. Right? He had no bush legs. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, he was a goof, anyways. <laughs> no. But um, and I hope he never sees this. But his name was Mike, and there's a lot of guys named Mike out there. So I'm yeah, you're sure you're fine. Okay. And um, there was this one part, and it was just steep. It was up in the out of out of Golden, so it was in, right in the Rockies, right? Mm-hmm. And it was this steep part where a little creek went down, this really like loose rocks and stuff all around. It was pretty. You had to be pretty careful going across, right? Mm-hmm. And every time we go across there, he'd fall in the creek. <laughs> and so we started calling it Mike Falls, right? That was the, the name of the creek. But one day he got all frustrated and he fell and he didn't stop himself. And he started sliding down the creek and about, you know, 40, 50 feet down the right, it was a cliff. You're going to die. You're going to fall off that. And he's just mad and he's just, and he's not stopping himself. And I said, Mike, fucking stop yourself. And it was the same thing. It just shook him out of that. And he mm-hmm. kind of got over his self-pity and was like, oh yeah, I better stop. Yeah. And And so... I think that was an act of compassion, ultimately, like your friend punching the other guy, right? Like, that's actually saving his life, right? That's... Yeah. 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 I think we can get into that ideologically, too. So I'll bring in my own personal story. (laughs) Um, So when I was at UVic back in the 90s, you know, I decided I was going to become vegetarian, Uh. which I like to say was the worst disease I ever had. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's not going to go over well with vegetarians. But anyway, (laughs) worst disease I ever had. Okay. Okay. and, we, you know, we had this group of people, this group of friends, and we would always sit around the, at the local restaurant place. Sure. And um, so one of, one of the guys was in biology. Mm. And, you know, I had, I had read this book about how vegetarianism is great, and I had taken it on as this ideology, right? And, <laughs> and he was trying to explain to me why it was actually not very good for the body. Mm. And I would have nothing to do with that, right? It's like... No, I read a book. I know, you know, just this real arrogance. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's funny. It's almost like I wish at that time. This guy's name is also Mike. Mm. <laughs> it's almost like at that time I wish Mike, and he was a big guy. Mm. It just stood up and just. <laughs> You're that, being an idiot. Yeah, that would just solve it. all the problems, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You're being stupid. Smack. Yeah. <laughs> at least I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, but but you came around. Uh, yeah, eventually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that was uh, silly. No, that one, that one, I've seen that happen to a lot of people. I, I've actually known people who are uh, anemic and they won't mm-hmm. eat meat. And you're like, you need iron and yeah. it would solve a lot of problems for you, right? Like, But uh, it's, so, it's so ideologically... Because there's a drive to try to be a good person. And this is a good thing, right? Like To try to mm. be a positive part of the community. Yeah, absolutely. But people take that and they don't think about it like from... Like it gets ideologically like limited, like it, their their vision becomes very narrowed. And you know, one of the things I think about with that one is, um, as far as I understand it, um, evolutionarily, it was the development, it was the consumption of meat that allowed us to take in enough concentrated proteins for our brains to expand to become human beings. Mm-hmm. And so we're, you know, meat is a big part of how it makes us possible as a species. And more than that, you know, like the use of fire to cook it was a big part of our evolution. But I, I grew up, 
uh, for the first eight years of my life in Haida Gwaii. Yeah. Uh, and um, so in touch with nature, right? Like, like the bear, I saw more bears than people generally. Um, and, and I don't understand, in, in a personal level, even though I can, uh, you know, abstract concepts, I can understand it, but on a personal level, I don't even understand the idea that it's unnatural for people to eat meat. It's, it's perfectly part of the ecosystem that some animals eat other animals. That's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. And I grew up hunting with my family and stuff, and I was taught by my dad and, and uncles and stuff to be very respectful of the animal when you take it down. And I think that that provides a more a deeper relationship than this idea that I just won't take part in that process. Well, it, you, 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 you are part of that process. You are a living thing. So I, I think you're touching on something that's, uh, it's almost like that, that viewpoint, and I've been there, right? I've, I've been the vegetarian, <laughs> is um, an unwillingness to engage in society. Mm. Um, and you're, you're putting uh, restrictions on it by, by saying, I'm being a good person. Yeah. Uh, but Jordan Peterson talks about the monster, mm-hmm. right? If, particularly for men, is recognizing the monster, being the monster, mm. doing horrible, awful things in your life is actually not a bad thing. Learning to control it, Learning to control it. is when you really yeah. hit the, the pinnacle of development, yeah. who you are as, as both a, an adult and a spiritual human being. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think if you go back to this, like vegetarianism is just one cover for not engaging with, mm. maybe not with society, but with your path. Yeah. Your spiritual path. You're very biology in a certain way. Yeah. yeah. Well, Joseph Campbell gets into, like, if you look at the hero's journey, the beginning of the journey is the hero actually avoids the journey. Yeah. It's the very first step. Yeah, yeah. And then something else has to come along and push them yeah. and say, no, you really have to do this. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think maybe I'm just hypothesizing being a vegetarian is one of those ways of saying, I don't really want to engage. Yeah. Well, um, conversations tend to get their own momentum. They do. They do. Especially when they're good conversations. So I'm going to say it was a good yep. conversation. Um, um, I'd like to, 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 to go towards a bit of an endpoint direction. Uh, one of the things I'm very curious about, because I, I, I was never interested in being political in my life. Um, I've always looked at politics as kind of this a nuisance in a way. Yep. And more than that, um, I've never looked at a politician, local or federal or whatever, and said, holy crap, is that an awesome person that I really want to f- follow and support? And I've never been inspired by politicians in that sense. I've been very inspired by individuals in the community that I've met, but not politicians. But then the PPC seems to be picking up some of that slack and saying, hey, these are first real people generally. Mm-hmm. And um, because they're talking common sense, because they're being honest, and because they're standing up against the overt authoritarianism that's being pushed right now, okay, I want to support this. I want to get behind this. Um, um, but now that the election's done, and it was kind of a farce of an election, um, the PPC now has got that 5% voting, whatever, that, that, that demarcation, yeah. and is now going to be eligible for federal funding, I understand it. So what happens from here going forward, Ben? Uh, well... Uh, we keep going forward. Um, you know, if you look at the People's Party of Canada platform, when Maxime started it back in 2018, he brought in the principles of freedom, responsibility, fairness, and respect. Yeah. But he'd always had those principles, like going back 10 years. So it's not like this is really new. He's just bringing this forward 
and I don't think Canada was ready for particularly freedom. We, we mm-hmm. always took freedom as just, what are you talking about freedom? We live in Canada. Mm-hmm. And in the moment that that freedom was actually challenged, which is where we're at now, suddenly people started looking around going, who is standing up for freedom? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, the, those PPC guys mm-hmm. have been talking about this. We didn't listen to them before, but now that suddenly matters. Um, so where we're at in the next election, you know, hopefully we don't have to deal with this mm. and that kind of freedom platform can be put aside. Mm. I, I don't think that's going to be the case. Mm. I think it'll still be very much the, the major question of the day. Mm. Um, so the, the People's Party of Canada is going to keep going forward on those four pillars, freedom, responsibility, fairness, and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this the responsibility part, the personal responsibility, I think a lot of what we've been talking about kind of comes back into that yeah. of taking personal responsibility for who you are, how you exist in your society, mm-hmm. um, not always expecting the government to do everything for you mm-hmm. because when they start taking that responsibility they start taking your freedom yeah so i think the part people's party of canada is going to gain more momentum in the next election i have no doubt about it yeah um well so so because um i'm such an outsider to political processes my my curiosity is more like between now and the next election is it a matter of just trying to get more um of the the platform out there getting more exposure um, um, are they seeking? Because I've heard some some talk about um, people running provincially as PPC members, and is that like what what is the best thing the party can do right now before the next election? In that sense, mostly it's name recognition. Mm. I mean, I had a campaign office in downtown Duncan, and a lot of people hadn't heard of the PPC. Yeah. But once they came in, yeah, most of them, not everyone, but most of them, would say, "Well, this is just." Yeah. A common sense platform that, you know, 20 years ago, this would be the standard platform for every <laughs> political party across the spectrum, right? Yes. Um, so I think one is just getting more recognition out to yeah. people that this exists. Yeah, okay. Um, I think that's the big thing. So um, obviously that's not going to come from mainstream. No. Um, and if it does, it's probably going to be slandered, right, to yep. you know, negative. Um, i seen a... It, it's it's anecdotal, but it's it's connected. Is um, they had massive protests in Milan yesterday. Yeah. And these CTV articles about it were calling them all all these ten thousand or more people. To, I can't remember tens of thousands of people, uh, right wing extremists. And it's yeah. like it's just so gross. It's just so gross. But so that, that's where this like podcast like this I think probably fit in. Is it's, it's a way to kind of communicate more of the ideas and get people more aware. Yeah. And then, I I guess what. Because, again, I'm just trying to figure this stuff out as I go, right, in terms of how this is going to play out. Because I know Trudeau mentioned something about um, having another elections in 18 months or something uh, in one of the debates. Mm-hmm. And the idea, I think, is that he really wants a majority so that he can get away with everything. But uh, is it, you, you are all, like, like, like I, again, I'm just, I'm new at this, trying to make sense of this. Um, are all the candidates going to remain candidates and then they just sort of help push the awareness the best they can and then the party is made up of people in that context um almost like a community advocacy advocacy group almost in that sense like is that kind of how this works yeah there will be some candidates that go on for the next election and some candidates will step aside and allow other people to step in Mm. um 
So it's, it's hard to say when the next election is going to be. Is it going to be 18 months? Is it going to be three years? We don't really know. Right. But in, that, in the meantime, it allows the party to certainly build up more infrastructure, mm. um, just get the organization a little bit more solid, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then in the meantime, people can, uh, candidates that exist now can keep having these kinds of conversations with people. Yeah. Um, you know, all of this goes back again to like what we were talking about at the beginning, yeah. where we're in this massive transition right now. Uh, from, like we've had this, this this nation state for 150 years. We're now in this transition, where we've got the left coming in and becoming more totalitarian, and communication is having to change. And I, I think we're moving away from the centralized CBC knows all, mm. and we kind of trust it because it's mostly trustable. <laughs> to now. Those centralized media are not trustable in any way. Yeah. So now we have to come back to the kitchen table yeah. and have these like one-on-one conversations yeah. with people. Yeah. Um, so I think you're going to see much more of this. Okay. Well, I, that makes sense. Would you? What would you say would be like the best thing a person can do to help? Um, not just the PPC, but just the general, uh, you know, preservation of values in Canada in that sense right now is it just these conversations is this a, a good enough start or anything else you want to throw in uh, you know what I had a pastor come to me a couple of days ago asking the same question huh. and um, I don't know if I should say this on air <laughs> <laughs> it's up to you well okay so being a political candidate uh, being someone that's standing out and saying this is not right no 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 or, or yes this is People will look at you that have information hmm. and they'll come to you if they trust you hmm. and they'll say, I need to tell you about this. I need to tell you about that. And so I feel like I'm a bit of a, a central point for all of these people to come together and share stuff with me. Right. Um, so, of course, I'm pretty sure CSIS has a big file on me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, but anyway, yeah. uh, I'm getting slightly off topic. But what can people do? One thing is... Yeah, you have these conversations. The conversations in society shape society. Yeah. Um, but right now, we're definitely being suppressed by traditional media. No doubt about it. Mm. Um, so you can take the political route. I actually call it... We have two and a half options. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'd say the half option is the political option. Oh, yeah. Because I'd say our political system is being corrupted. Mm-hmm. So, but we can't give up on the political option. It's, it's important. Hmm. But it's kind of half an option. Uh, the other option, I would say, is a legal option. Hmm. Is actually pushing back against some of these mandates that governments have no right to be doing. Hmm. Okay. So getting involved legally, and the legal system has problems. But I would say that right now, that's an important path. Okay. And the other path is the path that I can't really talk about. But I think we all think about it, hmm. which is... You know, you push people so far into a corner, they have to do something. Yeah, that concerns me. Yeah. Because as much as I understand the process that's involved with that, um, that could get real crazy. And I know people that are in the woodwork, in the background of society, that are almost at that point. Yeah. And I really don't want that to happen. I really, really don't. That's why we have to keep it over here. Yeah. 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 But well, well, this is, again, this is motivation to have these conversations and then, you know, to share the conversation like what this is going to do. Because yeah. um, as a martial artist, um, I've put a lot of time in my life studying 
violence and mm-hmm. human behavior. And that's really kind of what that's about. Um, so my teacher, um, who's in the Valley here, actually, technically, um, he always defined martial arts in a really beautiful way to me, which is martial coming out of the old Latin mar- martyr thing or martyr or something like that, which, which is the aim of resolving conflict. And art being the pursuit of perfection, knowing you can never achieve perfection. Mm-hmm. So being put together is the pursuit of the resolution of conflict, knowing that can never be completely achieved, but can be at least mitigated to a large extent. And that's what this is about, right, is, is that end. And I am very, and I'm willing to say this publicly, I'm very, I don't even think disappointed is the right word. It's beyond that. I'm, I'm shocked at politicians who don't seem to understand how human nature works in that way. Mm-hmm. It just boggles my mind. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, that's a concern. But I think, I think what you were right about, the two and a half is a nice way to put it. Um, I, I also think that resistance could be just non-compliance. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so if, if people just refuse to put the damn masks on, then what are they going to do? They're going to arrest everybody. That's, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So I think that comes back to the communication, though. Then we all just have these conversations and we start to feel solidified in our inclinations to resist in these peaceful ways. And then maybe that can become coordinated better. Hopefully. I don't have a lot of faith in like protesting and stuff. I don't feel like they'd really do anything. No. So, um, yeah, I, I, I I appreciate what you're saying there, and I appreciate that the PPC has a long-term aim. I think that's critical right now, and I'm glad that, like, I, I you know, who knows when the next election is and whatever all that stuff is, but I, I feel a sense of gratitude that whenever that comes, whenever that next election comes, the PPC are going to be there, and they're going to be a part of this, because we need it. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's going to be interesting for years. So, anything else you want to throw in to sort of finish it up? Um I think we have to remember too that these challenges always come up in societies, right? Yeah. And whatever we go through now will lead to something better on the other side. <laughs> That's the end. Hopefully. That's the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, um there's an old Chinese saying something like uh danger and opportunity are the same thing. Oh yeah, right? yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Um I think that if you had been sort of sleepwalking through life up until COVID hit and then COVID hits and it might have woken you up, it might have helped get thinking and I decided to be, have a public voice because of it. I never wanted that before. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those are those are things that are pushing in the directions I think that will in the end be good and my mom is a, I, my mom is an interesting lady. She's, she's a very smart woman but she's also got some new agey sort of tendencies mm-hmm. and, you know, I, through her, I've, I've exposed my, I've been exposed to a lot of that kind of thinking and, this idea of like the new age, right? Well, how about just an era where we go into that evolves past this myopic, greedy, corporatist, you know, way of things and actually gets to a place where the planet sustains itself in a much more human, humanitarian way, and but authentically, which is, you know, the kind of honesty we need to have these conversations the kind of accountability that needs to happen with the leaders that we have in public, um, especially that one. That one really bugs me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that there's optimism within that. Yeah. And um, I know it's not going to be easy, but there's people like yourself standing up, doing the right thing, and uh, that's what we need. So. And just to add to that, I think if you're going to look at places that actually um, yeah, almost lead the charge in a way... Mm. I think you'd find Cowichan Valley people mm. 
have always been on that end of yeah. let's just have less government, you know, yeah. live and let live attitude. Yeah. And when you start to infringe upon mm-hmm. my life, I'm, I'm going to do something about it. Right? Yeah. No, I'm not saying necessarily military option, but um, it's yeah, it's like the people of the Cowichan Valley are very much um, fantastic people, independent thinkers, yeah. um, always willing to look at something else, different options, find different ways of running our lives yeah. and, and very much like just big government, <laughs> big corporate structures. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's my, 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 my childhood growing up here. It shaped me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm, yeah, I'm grateful to have grown up here. I'm grateful for that. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your time today on it's the dark path podcast. It's been a real pleasure, Luke. Yeah. yeah. Thank and, you. Yeah. I, uh, I'll be following you and keeping up with you and I wish you the best. Likewise. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, maybe we'll have another conversation sometime. That'd be great. All right. Okay. Thanks. Thank you.